everybody. Um, Open up your Bibles with me. We're going right back to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be camping out on one verse in particular, although I'd like to start in verse 18. Our our verse is verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Once you get there... Put your seatbelt on because this one's a doozy. (laughs) Ready? Okay. Let's start in verse 18. We'll finish that whole phrase and we'll end on verse 21. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Here's our verse. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we open up your word fully intent on being subject to you and to your word. We realize that we often need help because of the schemes of the enemy, the sinfulness of our flesh, even just the craziness of the week that led us up until this morning, Lord. We realize that we are in a a crazy current. So we ask that Holy Spirit, you who we have been studying for months in and months out, would help us by illuminating your holy word and not just bringing it into our heads today, but driving it deep down into our hearts, that we might know you and enjoy you and teach others how to do the same. We pray that this study, even as we are digging deep into your word, would be for us an act of worship as we get some, some deep insight into the God that we love and serve and want to follow. We want to know more about who you are, Lord. We want to align our lives according to that truth. And so we pray that you would do that by your spirit today. We would leave this place with more than just a lecture on our minds, with more than just a few phrases or quotes, but a transformed life and a transformed church. People in Santa Barbara City would be able to look at us and say, I know that they follow Jesus because of their love for one another. Do that in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. This verse is pretty straightforward. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The the way I want to start this morning is before we even begin to unpack what this verse is saying to you and to me in relation to each other, uh, in order for the concept of this passage to really take root in our hearts, I I want to, I need to explain in some length, um, even briefly, some, some basic things about God. The basic nature of God. 
For it's out of his nature that some of these things are going to take root and really hold weight. Uh, I want to, I'm going to throw out some terms. I'll explain them. If you're writing stuff down, you can write these things down. Uh, but this is, this is kind of going to be the platform from which we, we launch ourselves. Some things about God that you and I maybe know, but certainly need to know this morning. One is, is very basic, and we believe that God is, is monotheistic. That, that simply means that he's one. There's only one God, right? Several of the world's major religions believe this, not just Christians. Christians do. Uh, Jews do. Uh, Muslims do. We believe that there is one God. There are not ten gods. There are not a thousand gods. There are not an infinite number of gods. There's only one God. There's a very basic view of several world religions and Christianity. Now, the second thing is where, uh, where we differentiate between Christianity and every other world religion. And that is that we're not just monotheistic. We don't just believe that there's one God. We believe that there's three persons in one God, right? So we're Trinitarian. We believe in a trinity. Uh, I think it was in the fourth century that Athanasian Creed uh, put it this way, just to take one phrase out of that long thing that they wrote. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. Well, that doesn't make sense, some of you would say. (laughs) Absolutely. That's why it took them 300 years to articulate this. I'm not expecting us to figure that out logically. All I need you to know is that that's what Christians believe. You could think of it this way. There's one what and three who's. There's one God, three persons, existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that means that before all of eternity, this is where it gets really fun when you start to think about this stuff, that before all of eternity, before all of creation, God existed in relationship by himself. That's fun, right? He didn't need anybody else. He wasn't bored or lonely. He existed as God, as one God, in perfect harmony and community and relationship with who? With the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What would they do? Well, they would love one another. You say, you can't, uh, we, we often say that God is love. Paul said God is love in the book of Corinthians. But what does love mean if you don't have anyone to share it with? Well, that wasn't a problem with God who is love in and of himself. Who did he share love with? The Father shared the love with the Son. The Son shared love with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shared love back with the Father and the Son. We see that in uh, the books, uh, books like the Gospel of John. There's this, this equality between all three of them. They They're all equally God, and yet they're always deferring to one another. They're always submitting to one another. They're always sharing one another's joy with each other. They're always considering the other as more important. We see before any other thing existed, God existed in perfect harmony and community in something that the uh, medieval theologians had uh, no idea how to put their finger on it except to call it the divine dance. This dance in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in themselves in perfect joy and relationship. And so we would have to say that when God created you and he created me, he didn't do it out of a sense of relational deficit, right? There was no emotional deficit. God didn't create Adam and Eve because he was like, oh man, the universe is a big lonely place and I don't know what to do with myself, so I'm going to create Adam in the garden. We'll walk together. No, he didn't create anything or anyone out of a, a deficit in himself, but an overflow 
He created human beings to share himself with. You can think of it in that term. He is exuding so much goodness and joy and love that he created human beings to reflect and to share in that. That's why we're told in uh, Genesis, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so God, verse 27, created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him, male and female, he created them and he blessed them. Okay. So God creates people to share himself, creates people that will reflect all that he is in creation. So at this point, and this is where I want to stop with the introduction, at this point, we at least have a working knowledge after all of that, that relationships in some way, in some form, are an integral part of what it means to be human. That this isn't something that you and I created, God created it. God exists in it. So when he created you and I, this is simply a part of our DNA. We need each other. We need relationships. So we know that people are created in the image of God, but when a person is, is saved by grace, so all people are created in the image of God, they're supposed to reflect that, but our image is broken because of sin. All people are like that. But when we're saved, something else happens. We're told that there is given to us a union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Where that image is restored piece by piece. We are unified with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 verse 1. Father, may they, speaking about you, the church, all who call upon the name of Christ, may they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Well, that's, that's awesome. So that the world may believe that you sent me. There's a, a divine dance going on, and, and Christ is praying to the Father, may they be included in the dance, okay? Our relationships exist for the glory of God. Our relationships exist Human relationships are designed to reflect God's relational nature. I want to say that again. Human relationships are designed to reflect God's relationships. So the way we interact with one another should show the world how God relates Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and with us. Now, why is this important? When we were going through the summer of the Spirit together, this question kept being repeated. Uh, a lot of people were asking this question, especially on the heels of topics like baptism in the Holy Spirit and especially the filling of the Holy Spirit. This question that we would often get asked in the aftermath of that, well, how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? Like, you know, like, do I get chills? <laughs> or, you know, is you know, corporate worship going to spontaneously erupt at my job? How do I know I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit? And it's actually very easy to know if you're filled with the Spirit or not. Keeping in mind, this is something we always want, right? You never stop being filled with the Spirit. When you're thirsty, you fill a glass with water. What happens when you drink that glass? Well, hopefully you keep filling it. Otherwise, you get, you get thirsty again. Well, same for us. 
We're constantly asking the Lord to fill us with the Spirit. But how do we know that we're being filled with the Spirit of God? Well, according to the Word of God, it has to do with God's relational nature. You know God is in you because you act like God in your relationships. It's very easy to write down. <laughs> it's very hard maybe to do. But that's, that's essentially what the Bible is saying. You want to know the effects of being filled with the Spirit? Look at your relationships. Hmm. Whenever the Spirit of God is present in a group of people, there's some things that you'll see, right? You'll see relational wholeness. You'll see relationships being mended. You'll see relationships uh, being done well, being done according to the scriptures. You'll see uh, us relating to one another, treating one another in a certain way, relational wholeness. You'll see uh, Galatians, the uh, epistle to the Galatians, uh, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. These are all relational fruit. Wherever the Holy Spirit is present, you will see things like love towards one another. But those are things we have to define further, right? Because culture has an idea of love, and God has an idea of love. Tim Keller, uh, in his book on marriage, once said, I love this quote, the, the world primarily describes love or measures love by how much of it you are able to receive from somebody else. But the Bible primarily defines the standard of love by how much you are willing to give to someone else. So if you were to ask, do I love well? Well, how much are you willing to give to the people that you confess to love? And this is exactly what we see in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm just going to turn there so I don't mess it up this week. Right? Verse 8, love never fails. What is love? Well, it's, Paul tells us love never fails. Love is patient. Verse 4, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. <laughs> How many of you like me failed like on the first phrase? You're like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> Love is... Love, if we could summarize it, just so we can have a working knowledge of what it means. Like when I say I love you, what does that mean? Well, after looking at that, we'd have to say love is considering the ultimate good of somebody else over your own. It's very simple, right? It's simple to explain. It means I care about your ultimate needs over my needs. Very simple, very difficult. And here's why. Here in our, our country, our state, and specifically our city, we are steeped in what social scientists call radical individualism, which works against everything that this is saying. Uh, one author, I love, uh, Joseph Hellerman puts it this way. He says, radical individualism is the belief that our own dreams and goals and personal fulfillment ought to take place over the well-being of any group 
our church and our family, for example, to which we belong. It means that the immediate needs of the individual is more important than the long-term health of the group. Does that sound familiar? That sounds how I feel most of the time. It means, yes, I have family, I have friends, I have a society, I have a church, all good and important things, but of ultimate importance is my thing. And I'll help you out as far as it depends upon me until it starts to contradict what I want and what I need. That is radical individualism. That is something very unique to where we live. And it's so, it, we're so steeped in it that perhaps you would throw out the Christian type of response like, oh, I know, it's so bad, like, but not us. <laughs> I love everybody because the love of Christ is in me until push comes to shove and something starts to usurp something that you feel you need or want. You start to feel exactly how deep you are enmeshed, enmeshed in the culture around you. We love ourselves. We are radically individualistic, and this is a problem. Apply the way that culture thinks and influences us to our relationships. How do we approach our relationships? Through individualism. How would that look? Well, how do you approach a relationship? Think about the the nitty-gritty, like the nuts and bolts of why you want any type of relationship. I want to get married. Why? So that I can be happy. I want a boyfriend. I want a girlfriend. I want a husband. I, don't want, I want a wife. Why? Because I'm lonely. Well, why do you want to get married? Because that person will fix my problems. Why do you, wanna, uh, why do you want to be a part of a community group? Because I have needs. Why do you want to go to this church? Because I have kids and I'm looking for a great children's ministry to meet my needs. So I could drop them off at the children's ministry and go do errands around the city. (laughs) I want great worship and I want entertaining teaching and I want all my needs met. This is how we approach relationships, right? How can my needs be met? We believe that relational wholeness is met by getting our needs met. And so the way that we approach relationships, since that's our motivation, is by asserting ourselves. Think about the little ways that we do that in our, uh, in our marriages. Well, when you come home from work, say uh, uh, if you're a, a working spouse, you come home, your, uh, your spouse is there watching the kid, you're just, uh, you're just just exhausted from the day, and you, are all, you, you go through the door already planning on what you're going to do to rest. It's all about you. And so you station yourself by your laptop or by the TV or by the newspaper or by a book or by something, closing yourself off from everything else. Why? Because my needs are met. My needs must be met. Of course, your spouse is probably exhausted and also has needs, and both of you are just fighting at one, one another. Well, why can't you do this? Well, can't you just leave me, can't you just give me a few minutes to myself? Well, you don't understand what I'm going through. And all of this this conflict happening because my needs are the most important. They take precedence over yours. Of course, that's just marriage. Think about all of our relationships and how we assert ourselves because we think that uh, what matters of ultimate importance is that we get our needs met so that the relationship uh, is able to work. And so we self-assert. 
And some of you have been self-asserting for enough years to know that it's gotten you nowhere. Because self-assertion is not the way to relational wholeness. Self-denial is the way to relational wholeness. This is something the New York Times will never tell you. Or the self-help guru who's got a best-selling book on the, uh, on the front shelf will never tell you. But this is what Jesus has been telling you since day one. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 through 39, he was the one who said, hey, he who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake is the one who's gonna find it. There's this counterintuitive sense that ours is not the most important thing. It's not self-assertion. It's not fighting for our own, uh, uh, our own things that we feel like we deserve that's the way to wholeness. It's denying ourselves in which we find all of those things. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter five is he's explaining self-denial in terms of relationships. He's saying, hey, this is the truth. Self-denial is the way to wholeness and this is what it looks like in relationships. You are to give up all of your desires for the other person. (laughs) Nobody clapping now. Let's see how it is. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, he uses this term that was common for commanders, perhaps in the military, uh, over subjects. Uh, To put it in more contemporary terms, you can think of it as like a colonel or a major or a sergeant over just like a private, right? That private is in subjection to a higher authority. He has no choice. He must do what is required of him. He is under the authority of a higher power. But Paul does something interesting. He takes that term and he uses it in the church and he applies it not to a hierarchy necessarily, but to you and to me for each other. He says, well, I'm to be subject to you and you're to be subject to me. And there's a whole lot of mutual subjection uh, supposed to be going on. We're all to be subject to one another and he uses it in the passive form, meaning it's not something that I force you to do or vice versa. It's something that I voluntarily place myself into. I choose because Christ is in me to be subject to everyone in my church family. And as he goes on and says, hey, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Remember, we talked about this last week. He starts to fill in the void with all of these participles, all of these phrases. Well, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Comma. It means speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why we sing on Sunday morning together. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Corporate worship. It it means that. Giving thanks in your heart to God, it means gratitude. And he keeps going, and this is where I cut it off last week because it deserves its own sermon, but the sentence goes on. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? To be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. How do you know we're filled with the Spirit? Because you in your relationships in the body of Christ are being subject to one another. If you are not being subject to one another, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul. Not me saying that. (laughs) 
Now, mutual submission doesn't cancel out authority, which is ordained by God, right? See that in Romans 13, government, authorities. We see it in different social structures. We see it in the church. God ordains leadership in the church. And of course, we see it most fully exemplified in Jesus himself. Talk about authority. He said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's quite a badge. All authority is mine. And then yet he says in another gospel, my food is to do the will of the Father. There's that deferment again. There's that humble submission to another in which Jesus finds joy in doing it. And so on one end we see ultimate authority. All authority has been given to me. And yet in the same mouth I find joy in submitting to the Father. Authority and submission go together. And so it's not that, that this, this concept takes away authority. It gives us a new idea of what God-given authority is supposed to be. It's supposed to be servant-oriented. Leaders are supposed to serve those that they lead. Often at their own expense. See, Jesus didn't submit to the Father because he had something out of it coming his way. He didn't do it from some ulterior motive. Actually, he died because of his obedience. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man... In his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The one with all the authority inside and around and upon him uses his authority to serve others to the point of death. He uses his authority to serve. And he gives that as an example of all who would lead in the kingdom of God. Mutual submission doesn't cancel out authority, it informs it. In Matthew 20, he would call his disciples together, who, by the way, we're talking about which one of them was the greatest, right? Three years with Jesus. They saw Jesus live. They saw his humble approach. He washed their feet. He did all of this stuff. And after the Lord's Supper, as he tells them that he's about to die, they get into an argument about who's going to take over. And Jesus calls them over and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus gives this pattern to all of his followers, those in roles of leadership, those in roles of volunteering, those in roles of following, everything and everyone, everyone in the body of Christ is called to imitate him by being subject to one another in a spirit of servanthood. So back to the original question, how do you know you're filled with the spirit? Because you are subject to others in the body of Christ without fail. 
Paul said to the Philippian church in chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, unified in spirit, intent on one purpose. Here it is. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Why, Paul? Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. How do you know you are experiencing the fellowship of the Spirit? Well, consider others more important than yourself. It's not bad to have personal needs, but the needs of others are now more important than your own. Which is a crazy thing to say, right? Because we've got some big needs in this house. Some of us have tremendous needs. And yet the scriptures are saying our greatest goal as the family of God is to consider one another's needs as more important than our own. The problem is when we refuse to do that and we self-assert ourselves. We, we don't trust that God will meet our needs and so we take uh, the initiative upon ourselves to get our own needs met at the expense of others. We're essentially saying that we have no need for the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why for some of you, you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can't tell the difference. Because you don't need it. Perhaps that's why you look uh, around at other people who are being filled with the Holy Spirit, perhaps are crying out for it, desperate for it, wondering what the big deal is. Because you've been living your whole life, you're getting ahead, things seem to be going awesome, you've never been filled, maybe even baptized with the Holy Spirit in your entire life, you don't get what the big deal is. Because you don't need it. You love yourself too much. Perhaps you love others a little bit, But when push comes to shove, you are the most important person in your life. And a person like that does not need a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come upon people so that they can play parlor games with him, nor does he come upon people so that they can be entertained and waste their life. He comes upon people who need him, who are desperate for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, who look at the Bible and say, that is so good, and I am so bad, and there is no way I can live like that unless God leaves his heavenly abode and crashes down on my life today. So I've just got to tell you, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is a gentle dove, metaphorically. He won't force himself on you. He loves to come upon people who are desperate. If you don't need him, he won't come. He won't come upon you. In that way, that specific way. Some of you say, yeah, well, that's, this is silly. The Father is perfect. Of course Jesus can submit to the Father because the Father is perfect. What you're asking me to do is submit to that guy. That lady, that person, everyone in here. Chris, I don't know if you know, everyone in here is imperfect. (laughs) 
I'm the worst of all. And that's why, brothers and sisters, Paul doesn't say in Ephesians 5, submit to one another for relational wholeness. Nor does he say, submit to the people who deserve that. Nor does he say, consider others more important, those who have stood the test of time and shown their true colors and came out looking blameless. Nor does he say, hey, submit to one another because you feel like it. Nor do you see anywhere in the Bible God telling you to do what God tells you to do because you feel like it. Rather, he says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. You know what that is? That is reverent worship. That is me saying, hey, Lord, even though I'm probably going to get burned, even though I'm probably going to get betrayed here and there, even though people don't deserve it, even though I'm angry with that particular person right now, even though everybody is, go- uh, is going to hurt me in some way or, in some, uh, or somehow, I am going to treat them as more significant than myself. Their needs take precedence over my own, not because they deserve it and not because I feel it and not even for for relational wholeness per se, but because you are worthy of my worship and that is my act of worship. And so you treat others this way, not because they deserve it, but because Christ treated you that way before you deserved it. And this then becomes not just relational, but worshipful. When we don't do that, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, is when we're told that the Spirit is grieved. You know why the Holy Spirit is grieved when we assert ourselves? Because every time we assert ourselves, we usurp the glory of Christ in our life. Christ came to serve and not be served. And he came to make disciples of himself in you and I. And so whenever we try to fight for our own way, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. But whenever Christ is central, the Spirit will be present to bless. This is essentially the Apostle Paul's argument. Worship isn't just about singing, although it is. We're going to do a lot of that in a minute. But it's also mutual submission. It's not just being thrilled by God and filled by God, but it's, it's being submitted to one another. And this is where Paul's cosmic theology in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, all of those outlandish things that he said, predestined before the foundations of the earth and God just putting on display his glory and all this stuff. And you're like reading the first three chapters and you're like, oh my God, my head is in the clouds. God, come now. And then you hit chapter 4 and chapter 5 and it's like submit to one another. Like, oh, that's anticlimactic. No, that's heaven coming to earth. That's the cosmic theology of Paul hitting you where it hurts. But where it will ultimately be so, so very good. It's what uh, Eugene Peterson once called the unglamorous ordinary. Where all of this rich truth about God begins to change how we interact with one another. Wives and husbands and employers and friends and family and churchgoers. 
And that word submit and subjection is such a dirty word in the modern mind. Do you know why? It's because we distort God's original plan for it. This is how most of you probably think of the word subject or submission to be. You think of it as in this way. I am going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. That's not it. Biblical submission is I see that you have real needs and I am going to meet your needs at my expense. And I can meet your needs at my expense because all of my needs have been met in Jesus Christ. When you have 100 people doing that all together, not just here in the theater, but in our homes, in our jobs, in our families, in our marriages, you will turn the city upside down. Because the world needs to see that. That is a pipe dream that the world needs to be a part of. And it's impossible for non-believers and believers alike, except for a mighty act of the spirit of the living God. If this were to happen in a mass scale, it would be Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 where we see saints always sharing with one another and having all things in common and meeting together with the word. Nobody has any needs because all their needs are being met by who? Not themselves, each other. That's what we see. And every now and then I get somebody complaining about how the modern church needs to be more like the book of Acts. Oh, if we could just go back to the early church, be like the book of Acts. The church these days, we just don't get it. We need to go back to the book of Acts and be like the book of Acts and be like the book of Acts and the early church. And that's where they really had it. It was so romantic and just signs and one. We just need to go back. Bro, you don't know what you're talking about. Do you know what that would require of your life? It would require you to give up all your ambitions and dreams for the kingdom of God. It would require you to consider everybody in your life as more important than yourself. It would require you to be willing to go through suffering, through loss of every imaginable thing for the glory of God. It would require you to be more generous with your time, with your resources, and with your money. It would require your entire life. Do you know what you are asking every time you complain about, I wish we could go back to the early church? All that being said, we don't need to go back to the early church. We have the same spirit of God waiting to pour himself out on us today. But I want to make sure you know what's going to happen when he does. He's going to uproot your life. And over the long haul, it'll be the best thing you've ever experienced, but it's also going to cost you everything. Are you willing to give up everything as Christ has given everything for you? I had some other things to say. I'm just going to stop by ending with this quote. One scholar wrote, I love this, Christians are called to live in mutual submission, and without mutual submission, they cannot fulfill their destiny, because your destiny, Christian, is one of worship. 
It's one of relationship and it's one of mission. And all three of those things are tied to how we relate to one another. Worship, subjecting ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Community, subjecting ourselves to one another in which all that healing happens, spiritual formation, reconciliation, edification, all happens when we subject ourselves, humble ourselves before one another. Mission, how does mission happen? Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. All of this happens when we have the right view of one another, when we are reflecting upon one another what God is, who he is, and how he lives as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is maybe going to be the hardest thing you and I have ever tried to do in the two years that we've existed as a local church. (sighs) But listen, before you get overwhelmed, let me tell you this. Nobody expects you to do this by yourself. And nobody expects you to get your act together on your own. The only thing that a Christian is able to do is to remember and to refocus, retune the instrument of their soul back into heaven where Christ is. And to remember not what you are going to do for others and for Christ, but what Christ has done for you. He came not to be served by you, but to serve you by giving his life as a ransom for many. And then you must be filled with the Spirit. So if there's anything you remember uh, this morning, let it be two things. Remember what Christ has done for you because of his great love for you. And two, remember what the Holy Spirit wants to do to you and in you right now. The only thing left to ponder and consider is do you want that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stir up in our souls today and in this body a critical mass of men and women and children who would say with our hands lifted high, we want it. That we are in many ways selfish, at least more selfish than we would like to be. And you are more selfless than we could imagine. And we're hoping that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the two would become one as you bring us closer into the arms of the Father. That our lives would now be changed, not by trying harder, not by striving for things, not by picking picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, not by going through a 10-point list of moral things that we need to get in order, but by being obsessed with your glory, by looking deeply into the heart of our God and being transformed as we behold those heavenly things. Lord, I sense that today many of us need to be transformed by beholding beautiful things. So God, set your foot down in this building right now, if I may be so bold, and shock us. Destroy our baggage. Uproot things that we have set into deeply. Tear, sever, remove the sin that so easily entangles us. Crush, disintegrate, and far remove all the idols that we have set around us. And 
for the good of your holy name, please remove our blinders, our apathy and our tiredness and our confusion and the chaos and our love for just trifling, trivial things that we surround ourselves with and give us a transcendent view of a beautiful, eternal destiny. As we repent of our sins today and rush joyfully into the arms of our Father. In Jesus' name.